All right, if you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 35. So I'll go ahead and read that for us. Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 35. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed with him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Let's go to the Lord and pray here. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you as we come to this this, uh, central, this pivotal, this crucial um, scene in in your scriptures, God. In in fact, it is the pivotal scene of of all of human history. Um, God, it is the... Uh, it is the moment um, that you have been working all of history towards, and it is the moment that will change all of history after it. Father, were it not for uh, the crucifixion of your son, Jesus Christ, we would be without hope. So, God, as we come to this passage, um, as as we talk about um, this truth over the next couple of weeks, um, God, that you would just impress upon our hearts as we continue through this Lenten season, um, that you would impress upon our hearts the centrality of the cross. God, that the cross would never be something that that we got over um, or that we move past, um, that we would not um, be ashamed of the cross, that we would keep it at the center of our belief and our theology. God, that we would recognize um, the the primacy of place um, that it takes in in everything we are as followers of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have recorded these things so that we may know them, that we may um, understand them uh, and and share them with those around us. We continue to pray um, for a spirit of revival in our country. Um, God, we pray that, um, God, as, as, uh, churches preach and teach and speak, um, the gospel faithfully, uh, Father, that your Holy Spirit 
would move among us, that they would move, that he would move among um, the churches, uh, and that you would awaken people's hearts, that you would till up um, the uh, seared and and hardened soil of our hearts. God, that you would awaken us um, to repentance, that you would awaken uh, your church to to faith, that you would awaken uh, your church to holiness. God, that that holiness would um, result in um, telling others about Jesus Christ, that it would result in the transformation of our communities. Um, God, that you would bring true and and complete and multifaceted revival um, to our our own hearts, our own homes, our church, our community, our state, and our nation, and God, into the entire world. God, help us to be um, agents of that. God, help us to to um, share the good news as we go, um, and always be ready to give an answer for the joy uh, that we have and the hope that we have. Um, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're just going to jump into the passage tonight. We come to, um, again, just as we prayed, um, the central um, section of, of, of everything that we uh, are, everything that we believe, the, the um, dual events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus um, are the Christian faith. Um, they are, are, everything centers there. Um, and without them, the Christian faith is devoid of all meaning. And so we come to this first little section. And as we come to the cross, we're going to talk about the cross for a couple of weeks and, and really for multiple weeks leading up to Easter in various ways, addressing it in different stories and in different places there in Luke. Um, but tonight we want to talk about the mercy of God that we see, the mercy of Christ particularly in this passage of scripture, because there's, there's two specific aspects in which the, the mercy of Jesus is put on display for us, um, in the events of this passage. And the first thing that we notice, and the first thing we're going to zoom in on is that Jesus, even in the midst of his suffering, that Jesus mourns for us, that Jesus is concerned for us, that Jesus is expressing mercy towards us, even in the midst of his own suffering. So as is often the case as we've studied through the Gospel of Luke, Luke's account of events corresponds with the other, what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark. And so John kind of tells a different kind of story. And so he sort of sits apart, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke in various ways tell very similar stories. Uh, all three of those Gospels mention this character of, of Simon the Cyrene coming to carry Jesus' cross. And, and we don't know this for sure. We really don't know a ton about Simon, but there is a church tradition that he was a, uh, a known quantity in the early church, along with his two sons that are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. And so the likelihood is that um, Simon and his two sons were later converts to Jesus Christ, that potentially, probably, by the things that he witnessed and experienced that day as he served Christ by carrying his cross, um, he, he came to a true and saving faith of Jesus. That's probably the case. Again, we don't know that for sure, but it's likely. Um, all three Gospels mention Simon. All three Gospels mention this place called Golgotha, or this place that is called the Skull. 
And that's actually what Golgotha means. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for the place of the skull. It's also actually where, this is, this is a fun fact, um, you, you, we hear the term Calvary, right? That the place where Jesus was crucified is called Calvary. Well, Calvary is also the word, it's the Latin word instead of the Greek word or the Aramaic word. It's the Latin word Calva, which means skull. And so again, we call Calvary, Calvary, because it comes from this name that was given to this place called the skull. We don't know for sure why it was called the skull. There's speculation about that. Some people think it's because there was a geographic feature in the rock that made it look like a skull. Some people think it was called that because it was the the designated place of execution or crucifixion, and therefore it was called the place of the skull. We're, We're not for sure why, but we know that they called this place Golgotha or Calvary or the place of the skull. Um, all three Gospels mention this dividing of his clothing section, all right? They also mention the fact that he was crucified between two thieves, and those are two details that we will return to um, in a moment. But Luke often also includes other incidents and parables and teachings that the other Gospel accounts do not. And so he has a, all three of the gospels have some unique material, but, but Luke seems to have, um, a, a whole lot of, of, of unique material. And verse 27 through 31 is such a, such an instance. So what sits on display in this discourse that he has with the women who are following behind in mourning, um, is something that you only see in the gospel of Luke. And it sort of accentuates, it puts on display the, unfathomable compassion, the the amazing mercy of Jesus. And that mercy is, is accentuated by the subtlety of the scene that we have here, okay? And so part of the thing that makes us zoom in and realize what incredible things are going on here, you have to, you have to recognize what's going on just by the, the passage. And, and we can do that by asking a question that should come up to us in verse 26. We begin to understand the scene if we ask this question after we read verse 26. Why must someone carry Jesus' cross for it? That's a question. Why should someone carry Jesus' cross for it? It was actually Roman custom that criminals who were condemned to crucifixion had to carry their own crosses, all right? That was the normal part of the whole, uh, you know, torture and condemnation and indignity of the process of crucifixion, that you had to carry your own cross. And again, we don't know for positive, but we think probably that what they would carry was the cross beam. So sometimes in, in art and in depictions, you'll see Jesus carrying the full you know, T-shaped cross that we think of, probably the case is, is that they would carry the cross beam. And then once they got to the side of crucifixion, the, 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 the vertical section of the cross was already in place in, in the ground and that they would be attached to that cross. We don't know that for sure again, but it was typical for criminals to have to carry their own cross. In fact, we see that in John's gospel, chapter 19, it specifically tells us that when Jesus set out after, um, at the beginning of this this uh, uh, incident, Jesus was carrying his own cross. He was made to carry his own cross just the same way everybody else would have been. So the question again is, why does someone need to carry the cross for Jesus? Well, it is almost certainly because of what Jesus has endured over the last 
three or four hours. So we're told in the Gospels that Pilate, after hearing the accusations from the Sanhedrin, Pilate wants to hand Jesus, uh, he wants to set him free. Um, Pilate recognizes that Jesus has done nothing that is obviously worthy of, of death or condemnation. And so Pilate wants to, to release him. But at the same time, we're told that Pilate says, well, I'll have him punished. I'll have Jesus flogged. And why that is, again, we maybe don't know for sure. Maybe it's because he's just trying to flex in terms of his his uh, authority and power. Maybe he's trying to appease the, the Jewish leadership and, and give them something, even if he's not willing to actually condemn Jesus to death. Um, maybe he's just ex- annoyed at being woken up at... 7 a.m. or whatever it ends up being and having to deal with this stuff um, as, as part of his job. But he has Jesus flogged. Tradition tells us that Jesus was whipped with this instrument that is called the cat of nine tails. It was a, a whip with nine interwoven cords. Um, those cords at the end had bits of metal and bits of glass or stone or bone um, weaved into the tips. And so a person um, who knows how to use a whip already, just an ordinary whip, can crack the skin open, right? He can split skin um, by by using um, a whip, just a normal whip. But the cat of nine tails um, would have done far more damage, um, tearing through, cutting through skin and fat and muscle. It is very likely that Jesus, after he is is whipped, um, that there is bone showing through, even internal organs pushing through the muscle wall. Forty lashes with the whip was enough to kill a normal person. And so Jesus' body at this point would have been shredded beyond recognition. Again, adding to the insult, adding to the injury of this moment, they add insult to it. And we find out that after Jesus is whipped, they take a purple robe and hang it around him. They place this crown of thorns over his head to mock his kingship. And so, again, we read in the other Gospels that in this condition, Jesus having been butchered, he is presented again to the Jewish leadership by Pilate with the words, and I'll probably not say them in the right Latin way, but eki homu, which means behold the man. So most people understand that to mean that Jesus standing in this almost unrecognizable state, um, bleeding, shredded, that as he stands there, Pilate brings him before the, the, the Sanhedrin again and says, Behold the man. Look, at this is the guy that you sent to me. You probably can't recognize him anymore because of the state he's in. But behold the man. Is this not enough? Is the, is, is the punishment and the torture that I have put him through not enough to atone for whatever crime you think that he has committed against you? Behold the butchered figure. Certainly this is enough. And what's the answer from the crowd? It isn't enough. Crucify him. Crucify him. 
At that point, Jesus is force marched from Pilate's residence. And we can only assume through the brutality that he has endured, his body fails and he falters along the way through the exhaustion. Because again, remember, he's not slept yet. Uh, he was up all night praying in the Garden of Gethsemane through the torture, through the very basic fact of the amount of blood that would be lost through a beating like this. It's taken its toll on him at this point. So it causes him to stumble. And each time he stumbles along this way, he is slower to rise, slower to rise under the weight of this beam of wood that he carries across the open wounds that are on his back and shoulders. So this path from uh, from the pilot's house to um, Golgotha is, we have a name for it, it's called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. So that's something that is commemorated in many church traditions um, through this, this exercise, this practice called the Stations of the Cross, where we go and we meditate on these um, traditional moments of, of Jesus' uh, passion uh, and leading to the crucifixion. So at some point, we can presume that Jesus falls again. And the centurions who were there leading the procession, they decide, man, this, this Jesus guy's just slowing us down too much. Okay. And so they grab a man out of the crowd, this random stranger, this guy named Siren, who, uh, Simon, who is from Cyrene. Cyrene is in modern day Libya or, or North Africa there. Um, uh, he's just a bystander. And there's an interesting thing. There's a whole nother story that we could talk about there of, of the, of the, the, the interesting situation that the, he is put in. All right. Simon of Cyrene is literally called to bear the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is at least a possibility that when he puts that cross on his shoulders, by the time they get to Golgotha, maybe there's been a guard change. Maybe somebody has moved out or is not in the right place. And so Simon will be thought to be one of the prisoners being executed. And that Simon is is fearful that he may be counted as one of those who is being executed that day. There is an incredible picture there, a parable, we could say, for our life as followers of Jesus Christ. That as we carry the cross of Christ, as we bear our own crosses, there is a chance that we will be counted among Jesus followers, or we will be mistaken for Jesus symbolically, and we will be treated the same way that he is. There's a whole other picture, a whole other sermon there. But that whole scene is the backdrop of verse 27, where Jesus stumbles probably at some point. The women around him cry out in agony for somebody to help him. Jesus pauses, he gathers his strength, and he turns to these women in verse 27, and he says, it says, there, there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting. So these women, many of whom were probably part of his entourage, they had been with him since the beginning, people like his mother, Mary, um, people like Mary Magdalene, they are, they are horrified by what they're watching. They're horrified by what they're seeing. Jesus' deformed body. Again, many of these women probably were not allowed to go into the proceedings. And so Jesus went in intact, and now Jesus has come out of Pilate's residence um, a shell of himself. 
They're horrified at his deformed body. They're horrified at the condemnation of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. They are horrified by the fact that Jesus is being force marched to execution. If they are familiar at all with crucifixion, they know what is coming. And they have to wonder to themselves, and how did this thing go so wrong so fast? Like, how was it that that days ago people were welcoming Jesus into the city of Jerusalem with cries of Hosanna in the highest? And here he is being marched to his execution. And again, considering all that Jesus has been through and what is still ahead of him, it makes his words to these women all the more striking. Because what does he say? He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So we can read that in certain different ways. And you may have read it in different ways. We can, one, read that as a warning. And it is a warning. Because the reality is, is the rejection of Jesus at this point by the Jewish leadership, by the Jewish nation, has has sealed their fate. Judgment is coming. He's actually already told us this. There's no escaping it now. There's no really room for repentance to even change the course of what is going to happen to Jerusalem. There's no room to turn back God's rebuke of the nation of Israel at this point. So verse 29, he says, Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus says to these women, the horror of what is coming will make anyone caught up in it glad that they never had children. So that their children will not have to experience that same suffering. Okay. You have to remember what a big deal that would have been to the, to a Jewish woman. A Jewish woman whose calling and meaning and even joy was all tied up in their opportunity and ability to have children. And Jesus is saying to them, when this judgment comes, you will wish you were barren. You will wish for death. In fact, you will wish that the suffering would be over and that the earth itself would rise up and cover you, not to hide you from it, but to put it to end it. Now, again, what's what's crazy is that Jesus has already warned us of these things in the Gospel of Luke. And so this isn't new information to anybody who has been listening to the teachings of Jesus at this point. He says, Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, when you see these signs coming, you should get out of Jerusalem. And remember, if you remember back months ago, we talked about that fact, about how at one point there seems to have been a mass exodus of Christians right before um, the siege by the Romans of Jerusalem. And so many of the Christians heeded the advice. They saw the signs and they got out um, before it was too late. But for Jesus, he's saying, if you do not get out, um, there will, you'll be unable to escape. There won't be any way to to uh, get away from the things that are coming. And he says this sort of cryptic line, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? There's different ways of understanding that passage. We're not positive that Jesus is talking about their treatment of him. Exactly. It's obviously connected to that. What does he mean by when the wood is green? Is he saying, I am innocent and you are guilty or 
um, uh, and they're treating me this way. So just think of what they'll do when when they have their their way with you. Um, we're not exactly sure, but we get the, we get the feel of the passage. But here's the deal: we misunderstand it if Jesus if we think of Jesus speaking triumphantly in these warnings. We misunderstand it if we think of Jesus sort of finger wagging and saying, "You guys better watch out for what's coming." Okay, that is not the tone that he has in this passage. His tone is one of empathy, of compassionate concern. When Jesus is at his most wretched, his thoughts are still on the suffering of others. When Jesus has literally been beaten half to death, when his life is being poured out like a cup, His thoughts are still on the faithful. His thoughts are still on the pain and suffering that his followers have gone through and will go through in the future. And again, that's crazy because Jesus will experience infinitely more suffering than anyone ever has in the coming hours. As horrific as the siege of Jerusalem is, and we know that from history, it is nothing to compare to what Jesus goes through in in the crucifixion. And consider that he does that ultimately to free you from suffering. That Jesus experiences that suffering so that we will not have to suffer. Jesus is so compassionate so concerned with your eternal future and blessing that he will endure it all. All the shame, all the suffering of the cross to save you and I, and all the while still be more concerned with our suffering than his own. The compassion of Jesus for these faithful women is incredible. But his Mercy that we see later in the passage to his persecutors is even more incredible, literally divine. We get down to verse 33 and 34, and it says they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals on his right and his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Again, that line is probably one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. I don't know, you know, I don't have a stat for that or anything, but I feel like that's a line and a concept that we hear quoted even outside of the church. It's something that is a, is, is a, is a known utterance of Jesus. And it seems impossible that he would, even as he is being crucified, that he would ask for forgiveness for those who were crucified. Even as he hangs there in agony, Jesus is merciful. And so we look at that and we say, how can this be? Like, how can this be? We are right to see it as otherworldly. That's not the best term, but we are right to see it as miraculous, as divine. That's why we recognize that while we are called to forgive as Jesus has forgiven, there is a reality in which we could never, we can never forgive as Jesus has forgiven certainly outside of the work of the Spirit working in us. The only way we could ever hope that we would forgive as Jesus has forgiven 
is if the spirit of Jesus is dwelling inside of us. How can this be? Well, we could say it another way. It's proper to say the reason is is because Jesus is mercy. Jesus is love. Jesus' compassion and, and his mercy, they are intrinsic to his character. They are intrinsic to his being. Jesus loves because that's his eternal character. He is merciful because that's who God is. And outside circumstances don't change that character. And the hatred and the viciousness of his attackers doesn't change his response to them. Because as we read earlier in that prayer from Augustine, because God doesn't change. If Jesus is merciful now, he will be merciful forever. Now, is that the only aspect of Jesus' character? Certainly not. There is justice and there is righteousness and there is all those things. And so we certainly can't just take one element and and ignore everything else. And yet, in the midst of this, it is this mercy that's on display. Again, we could say it this way. Mercy is natural to Jesus. It's just how he is. When Christ is merciful, he is acting like himself. There's a, there's a simple lyric from a, from a Josh Garrell song. I don't know if you know that singer, but he says this simple little sort of sing song line. He says, the good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. And that's the reality of this passage. Jesus is looking to these, these faithful women and he's looking to his enemies and he has mercy on both those who followed him and those who flogged him, those who praise him and those who pierce him. Jesus has mercy on them both. And so Jesus' mercy is intrinsic to his character. But I think there's another thing that is subtly highlighted in this passage. And it's just a cool thing that we've already mentioned in previous sermons. Another reason that Jesus' mercy in suffering The reason why he can be so merciful is because he knows that all these things that are happening to him are working according to the plans of God. That everything that is happening is exactly what was supposed to happen. These women that followed Jesus and were looking at him on this this Via Dolorosa, this way of suffering, right? Um, I can only assume that they are watching thinking everything has gone horribly wrong. But we are given hints in the text that remind us as readers to look to the plan of God that was shown to us in the Old Testament and to see its fulfillment in Christ's suffering. And so there's two interesting details in this passage. Two interesting details. One is verse 32. It says, two others who were criminals were led away and put to death with him. All right, now again, that, that might be, we might not be too surprised with that. Might be common that you would that you would execute multiple criminals at the same time, but it is an interesting detail, one that we're going to elaborate on in the coming weeks. But thirty-four, the second half of their first verse thirty-four, is if you think about it, an odd thing to include when you're telling the story of Jesus' death. It's just an odd little detail to include, and they cast lots to divide his garments. That doesn't seem like it's that big a deal 
that you would, when you've only said a few paragraphs worth of content, that you would make sure you included that piece. But we know why it's there. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, the fact that Jesus is crucified between two thieves is a further fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12, that says that he was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus is treated and associated as a common criminal in his death. But the second reference in 34 is, in a sense, more random, a detail by itself, and also more pointed and more clear a reference to an Old Testament passage, and this time it's Psalms 22. And so the combination of these two Old Testament references is conspicuous because we recognize them, and I said this a few weeks ago, to probably be the most Christocentric passages in the Old Testament and Crucio-centric passages, passages in the Old Testament, meaning taken by themselves, they are the most Christ-centered passages and cross-centered passages in all of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22. So I'd encourage you to take time in the next few days during the season of Lent leading up to Easter. Go back and meditate on those passages and read them. But I'll kind of give you a brief overview of what it is pointing us to as we, as we hear those two references. Psalm 22 recounts this man who is being condemned, who is being mocked, who is being tortured. And in the same section that we are told that prophetic line about the casting of lots for his clothing in Psalm 22, we read that this condemned man, that his hands and his feet are pierced. And that's an act that obviously sounds very much like crucifixion. But an interesting thing to know is that when the psalmist wrote those words, crucifixion wouldn't be invented for another 600 years. And the Romans wouldn't perfect Uh, the the crucifixion for another 300 years after that. And yet this passage written a thousand years before Christ seems to be pointing directly to and in the same passage as that one about the casting of lots for the clothing, it seems to be pointing directly to crucifixion. Additionally, Matthew and Mark both record Jesus spoke the first line of Psalm 22 when he was on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lem sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First line of Psalm 22, some of Jesus' last words as he hangs on the cross, pointing us back to that psalm. And so while this condemned man in Psalm 22 is suffering, and, and the nature of his suffering takes up a significant amount of that psalm, the rest of the passage recounts God's faithfulness. The fact that even in the midst of suffering, God is present. That he is accomplishing his purposes, even when it seems like he's not. And that in the end, this man who is being tortured and killed will be vindicated and God will be glorified. That's what Psalm 22 tells us. We go to Isaiah 53, and it also recounts the torture and death of a Nameless man. Technically, that verse, that section, chapter 53, begins in 
chapter 52 at the very end. So again, our, our chapter headings are all added later and, and, but the, the larger section begins in chapter 52. And in that, the last few verses of chapter 52 of Isaiah, we are told this, this suffering servant that he is called in verse 14 and 52, it says, many were astonished at him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. So there's this prophecy and it's saying the people looked on this suffering servant and they could barely recognize him as human anymore because of the torture that he had endured. And then it goes on in verse 50, uh, chapter 53 And it is even more emphatic about this man's torture, even more descriptive about his death, and also acknowledges the fact that this is part of the will of God and the plan of God, just like Psalm 22 did. But there is a particular point made in Isaiah 53 that's not made in Psalm 22. And that particular point is this, that the suffering servant's death is not just an act of injustice and violence on the part of the wicked. It is not just senseless, but it is in some way sacrificial. Somehow, this suffering servant's death is atoning for all of mankind. And so we read those verses in Isaiah 53 over and over again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is it the case that this suffering servant is somehow bearing the sin of all mankind? It goes on to say, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Finally, it says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we see this incredible picture as we close of God's mercy in Jesus Christ, Christ's mercy as he suffers, as he is tortured, as he is even crucified. And yet it is accentuated by the fact that those incidents point to the fulfillment of Scripture. They point to the fact that this was always the case, that this was always the plan. Isaiah 53 goes on to say um, it was the Lord who crushed him. It was God's will that he would bear the punishment that we deserved. And so even in the midst of his suffering, the plan of God is working out. The salvation of God is coming to his people. 
And Jesus is extending his mercy in the midst of his own suffering. That's the promise of the cross. Right? That is the, the truth and the reality of the cross. That in the most wicked thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, that we can find peace and mercy with God. And that that was always God's intention. And that was always God's plan. So what I want to do is just go to the Lord in prayer. I hope it is the case that the cross is something that you think on regularly. That what Christ has endured for our salvation is something that you meditate on, that you live your life in light of. That if you can go out into the world and know the mercy of God, that we can also seek to extend the mercy of God. Again, in all the frail and and uh, messed up ways that we do that, all the inconsistencies that are there, and yet in Christ's mercy, he calls us to be merciful as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that he would impress these things upon our hearts. Ask that the cross would be central. Ask that we would have a cross-shaped indention in our lives and hearts and minds and souls, and that everything that we do would be a function of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his cross. Again, we, we simply pray uh, that you would impress these things upon our hearts. That we would know the truth of the cross. That we would rest in the salvation of the cross. God, and that our lives would be cross-shaped as we seek to be merciful, um, to love, to serve to put others before ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. We <laughs> Thing to say is well.
Amen. It still works. Good. Um, let me encourage you with one thing. If uh, if you're not already reading something or if you're a, a, an avid reader and you're just looking for something else to read during this time, um, the book that we went through back a year ago or so, Gentle and Lowly by uh, Ortland, um, Dane Ortland, yep, um, would be a great book to to reflect on the mercy of Christ. Um, and so if you're just looking for something to to read and to meditate on as we head up to Easter, um, gentle and lowly, we might even have a couple of copies still sitting around here. So if it's something that you don't have and you would be interested in, I'll see if I can find you one. But man, it would be a great uh, resource right now to just sort of read on and meditate and, and look at the gentleness, the lowliness, the mercy um, of Jesus Christ um, in his life, death, and resurrection. So um I know it's heavy stuff, right? We're, we're in the heavy section. Um, and so, so we'll, we'll be a few weeks in, in the crucifixion, um, narrative. But again, um, we're okay with that heaviness, um, because it is our life. Um, Jesus uh, cross is the reason why we are here. And so, um, we thank him for that. So I hope you have a great week. Um, hope to see you next week as we continue. We'll be in the next passage and continuing to talk about the cross uh, and the crucifixion and um, see what God has for us. So here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.